already nice. started recording, so we can just jump right perfect. in. Perfect. Perfect. You well. Covenant's made simple. This is chapter six, number six. Um, we are on six, man. Um, the covenant looking towards this new king. Yeah, so David. Getting into the Davidic covenant. And or it could be Saul. We don't really know. I mean, this, he's <laughs> uncertain at first, maybe. <laughs> Although pretty certain from the I was going to say, that's so um, just finishing up. I'm, I'm doing the McShane reading plan, so just finishing up Bible in a year this month. Uh, next month, I should say. And uh, reading through 2 Samuel right now, which means I've been through 1 Samuel, if you've done your math there, if you, if you know your Bible history. <laughs> um, curious what your thoughts are on it seems like there's a couple different there's at least two different theological lanes for thoughts on Saul um, and it seems like some commentators would say well Saul starts off well Saul starts off in the right direction and over time his character erodes and he degradates further and further from obedience versus I think what I'm persuaded of is from the very start we see a lot of signs that nope he's actually terrible from the beginning yeah. he's a coward he's a, attracted to other powerful people because he himself is so insecure and weak. Uh, So not to set you up at all, but yeah. Yeah. Um, So you have several different things going on that I think about with Saul. Um, Number one, the whole thing starts with the people desiring a king and God giving it reluctantly. Mm. Right? God wants to give them a king. We know that. Um, Mm -hmm. He has laws about the kings. Um, that he talks about this in the chapter, right? Mm-hmm. That there yep. is actually yep. this is actually the plan of God to give them a king, but the people wanted a king in place of just God leading them and to be like the, like nations, the nations around them. them. Yeah. So it, it, like the first desire for this king starts there. Um, the reason, not the reason Saul's chosen, but one of the reasons they like him is because he looks like a king. Right, mm-hmm. so they put a lot of emphasis on his outward Tall, appearance. handsome, strong. Yep. Um, he is uh, a uh, Benjamite, mm-hmm. which should be, I think, a little bit surprising to us because shortly before that, wasn't that the tribe that yes. like had ostracized themselves? Yeah. And- so if I mean, if you have been reading from you know beginning of the Bible through, you get to the end of the Book of Judges, mm-hmm. and Benjamin is horrifyingly bad. Right. right? Like just yeah. as bad as it can be. Everybody's like, we need mm-hmm. to kill all these people. Right. Um, they're horrible. And here, the first king mm-hmm. is from the tribe of Benjamite, and right. it makes it very clear. Like it really, you know, like works to say that. Um, number two, this is a little bit more theological and more like you have to have a little bit wider view of the scripture. Um, but what do you find? What is what is one of the ways that Christ is announced as king? Oh, I, I think I know where you're going. Are you talking about the donkey? Yeah. Where Christ arrives on a donkey. Yes. Also, isn't, is it Solomon who also in the Old Testament? Yep. yep. But then we see Solomon Saul. enters into the city on a donkey, um, and uh, Christ does, obviously, in his triumphal entry. And this is <laughs> your king will come riding on a donkey, right? right? This is right. to fulfill prophecy. And that, Saul yeah. starts out <laughs> searching for a donkey. Like, he can't find him, mm-hmm. and he never does. Right. He actually never finds them. Um, they show back up at his right. father's house, and he never rides them home. He right. does, you know, he doesn't find them and ride them home. Yeah. And, and so all those things, I think, point to the fact that Saul was bad from the start. Right. Well, and moreover, even in that in that story, in that narrative, if I remember correctly, I think it's his servant who, like, essentially does the leading there and has, like, the wise words to Saul of, yeah. like, it should hey, be should Saul should be, Right. But Saul's like, okay, well, I'll just, yeah. He, and he also tries to, like, I think at one point give up early or something or whatever it is. It was just, like, 
yeah, demonstrated from the very get go. It seemed like okay, this is yep. this is not uh, typological of yeah. the coming Christ. Well, and so if you go, if you say, okay, um, Saul's anointed king in chapter ten. Mm-hmm. By chapter thirteen, he's already making an unlawful sacrifice. <laughs> so he's didn't take long. So let's just say, let's you know, let's say, okay, even if he started off okay, mm-hmm. um, he's gone off the deep end really quick. Like right. This is before David's around. This is like this is so early. Right. Um, that it's bad. I mean, he's bad from the start. Yeah, yeah. I think I think definitely he's set up to be bad. And actually, one of the things you see, I think, is that there is a, a typology at work too, um, where later on in scripture Israel becomes like Saul mm-hmm. Israel is like Saul right and right. Christ is David he's the right. son of David and so you get that like Benjamite versus the other tribes kind of a situation mm-hmm. but with the leaders of Israel versus right. Christ uh, so that's what I think anyway I'm, yeah no, I'm, that, I'm definitely persuaded of that I find that compelling as well um, I will say so I think if you would have asked me before my most recent reading through the Old Testament here, I would have said, oh, yeah, Saul throws a spear at David. I don't think I would have recalled that he does that more than once and also does it to his son Jonathan. Yes. And the question that lingers in my mind is who keeps on giving this guy spears? <laughs> like, he's in his he's courtroom. He's the king, man. He's so, the somebody's got to take that away from him. <laughs> no. Like, all right, third time in a row you said you regret this. No. Just, oh my Dude, if you try to take a spear from a guy that throws spears That's at people, fair. you're That's not going to be the guy okay. that and he's yeah. the king. Right? Like... <laughs> The king throws spears. Will somebody take it from him? I'm not doing it. No, yeah, that's true. Better you than me. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that was just ridiculous. I'm curious, so on that note of, um, yeah, those two two perceptions of Saul, do you feel like in your evangelical upbringing, um, actually not even on Saul, but moreover as the idea of, like, kingship through Israel, um, it felt like for me it was a fairly novel idea a couple years ago when for the first time I read, no, actually, this king wasn't just God reluctantly giving in eventually, and that was, like, the entirety of his plan was, man, I'm really irritated. These people keep on asking me for a king, so fine, I'll give you a king. And, oh, actually, David turned out a lot better than I expected, so maybe I'll use this after all. Versus the idea of, no, we see even back in Deuteronomy, God planting seeds, yes. and yes, we you know, of course Saul was not the king that Israel was supposed to have. Yep. Um, but then he gives David. So, did you feel like you'd been equipped at a young enough age? Like, do you think we do? A, does broader evangelicalism do a good job well, of? I really, no, I guess that I, that sentence alone, you're is always going to be answered no, probably. Right. But, no, I feel like maybe it's just because the circles I run in, but that term is just negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yep. Yep. I no, sometimes say say mainstream evangelicalism. Sure. Right? Sure. Or, or mainline evangelicalism, mm-hmm. even. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think so, but I think that you could do a good job. Uh, and, uh, for instance, I think if you taught your kids the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, which you can find, by the way, all done to little tunes that my family and I did on YouTube, um, I will try to link to that in this so that people can find it. But you can find it if you find me on Twitter or something, too. I have it. I have it around. Um, but if you just search for the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, put to song on YouTube, you'll find it. And um, it's really easy to teach your kids the Shorter Catechism. I mean, my seven and five-year-old know the vast majority of it by now. If not, I, they wouldn't have all of it. Like, they'd still struggle with some of it. Uh, but they're really close. Like, they're, they will have it all memorized within the next year, I think. Mm. Um, and, and it's pretty simple. And one of the things that... Uh, that it does 
is it talks about how Christ fulfills um, the offices of a prophet, a priest, and a and king. king yeah. And that's huge. Mm-hmm. It's such a huge thing you need to just understand the Old Testament and why it does the things it does, why the characters are the way they are, why they have the roles that they have. I mean, when you realize that, you say, okay, look, every like all of the main characters of the Bible are prophets, priests, or kings. Um, and especially in the Old Testament. And all of that ultimately is pointing to and leading to Christ. And so, yeah, Christ, uh, God was always going to establish a king. Um, that was always part of his plan. And he was doing that in the commonwealth of Israel as a means to point to Christ, right? As a means to... to uh, prepare the people in advance like a tutor leading the people uh, to where things would end up to help them to understand when the king comes this is how you will understand who he's supposed to be what he's going to be right he's the son of david he is the true king Uh, so yeah i don't i don't know um, how well that's done across the board in any denomination at this point but uh, but i do think it would be super helpful um, sometimes we just do for kids we just do Bible stories or certain characters and that's okay right where you have Moses you've got Noah you've got David you do the main covenants by character you just don't realize it right mm-hmm. yep um, and it's maybe not explained that way and so I think it'd be helpful to explain the idea of covenant um, and the way that God can do it. actually I was literally doing this when we were doing family worship um, just uh, either yesterday or the day before uh, we we're reading through Abraham and the promises to Abraham. And one of the things I did with my kids for the first time, because I'd never um, done this before, was I used um, John T. Rhodes, uh, you know, idea of the three promises that God makes with the covenant of the people, the place, and his yeah, presence. Yeah. Yeah. And it was super helpful, super mm-hmm. helpful for the kids, I think. And I said, like, hold on to this, because right now we're doing a kind of a, you know, a flyover, like the major stories of the Bible, major characters, major stories, mm-hmm. basically the covenants, and then some things within there, you know, uh, and and we're still in Genesis. We've been doing it for a while. It's, I mean, it's not like a quick flyover necessarily, mm-hmm. but but we up until that point we had just been reading basically straight through uh, a gospel. So I said, okay, we're gonna do just kind of jump through to these major characters and. Um, and it was super helpful to be able to say, look, here are the three things that God promises. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, watch for these. As we keep reading, watch for these things. See how they and continue and build and they progress. See how they continue to build. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, super helpful. Yeah. So I think doing that, right, so the covenants and even using Rhodes uh, and his, his three Ps could be helpful in that. And then also um, building from that idea of prophet, priest, and king. Right. I think those two A things could just yeah. super open up the Old Testament for most kids. Yeah. No, I think that would have been really helpful for me at a younger age. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, uh, in this chapter, the three Ps are not the only three letters. We also get the three Gs show up, if you remember that. And then I don't remember um, the three Gs. Yes, the three Gs are what the kings in Deuteronomy are supposed to stay away from: guns, oh, yes. girls, and <laughs> guns, girls, and gold. Guns, girls, and gold, <laughs> or chariots, girls, and gold. But nonetheless, that was I, that was I had never good. heard that. I thought that was great. And then also. In this chapter, we see added to the list of the three Ps. So uh, throughout all the covenants previously, it's been God's people enjoying God's paradise in God's presence. Well, now we get another one, and somehow Jonti can't find a way to make it fit in with the Ps. We have to add a K here. Um, but, yeah, we get to eventually see the introduction of a king in this P-P-P-K. chapter. So. P-P-P-K. Um, 
yeah, is there a way you could make it? Through I thought king? about it for I a little bit. So. I was like, maybe if you call it a priestly king, if uh, you give an adjective, but but that doesn't seem fair. Yeah. So double word. Yeah. I'm just trying to be slimy there. So, anyways, yeah, no, I I just so it's funny. The last time that we were recorded, it had been at least a month since I'd read the chapter to the time of reading it. Well, now I procrastinated until last night to read the chapter, so it's <laughs> much, it's much fresh. more fresh. Hey, that's so, right. If you wait to the last minute, it only takes a minute. <laughs> My wife loves it when I do that. That is horrible. <laughs> that is horrible. Um, I also only read it yesterday, so. hey But it's, I try to do that because then it's easier to talk about. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he works through, he quickly, you know, does an overview of, you know, Joshua and then the time of the judges. And obviously one of the the issues of the book of Judges is um, there was no king in Israel. So they did and what so everybody does right. what right. is right in their own eyes. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's just a time, Jaunty says, of covenant breaking. Mm. And um, you see that. Uh, I will say, by the way, so, you know, if you jump into First Samuel, you have what looks like the answer to that, where the people desire a king, God, you know, seems reluctant and gives it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, or really, Samuel's reluctant. God says, look, they've already left me. Right. Um, you can do this. Um, but actually, in between, you have the book of Ruth, which is actually the answer to the judges and to the time of the judges. It just doesn't look as clear, as flashy, as, you know, it's not all of Israel gathering saying, we need a king, and here's this, you know, guy that's going to be the king. Um, it is just a, a regular uh, woman hmm. uh, in Ruth and uh, who is just simply faithful to Naomi. And that's it like that she's just faithful to her and through that faithfulness and through that trusting in God and and learning to trust Naomi's God um, she ends up with Boaz a prince in Israel and becomes the the grandmother of David Mm -hmm. Uh, or is it grandmother of David's father I don't remember I don't recall she's she's grandma or great-grandma uh, and yeah, we could find it. By the way, it plays a really critical role. It's yeah. right at the end. So anyway, that's really and and the book of Ruth starts with saying you know that this happened in the time of the judges. Right. And so really, that is the in a sense the biblical answer to the book of Judges. Um, let's see. Okay, Boaz, Jesse, Obed, Obed, Jesse, David. So, so what, great grandpa. Yeah, uh, it'd be great great grandpa. Dang it. Grandpa, great grandpa. Yep. So Boaz was great grandpa. Ruth, great grandma. Yep. Uh, of David. And so, uh, yeah. Anyway, I just I think that's important because um, you see that God was providing a king mm. actually already. He was already at work doing right. that. But he was doing that through just regular simple faithfulness mm-hmm. of this woman that you never would expect. Right. She was just being faithful to right. her mother-in-law, and that's it. Like right. that. You know, you don't expect that to be how God provides. For the whole nation, right? But actually, it is. That's how God and he does works it regularly, all right? Yeah. All the time. Yep. Yeah. This is the this is the norm. Mm-hmm. It's a, an important part um, to remember that just simple faithfulness is is God's means of providing. Mm. So anyway, he jumps through that, jumps through the book of Judges, which is you know a fascinating book. Would be mm-hmm. fun to talk about sometime um, because of just how interesting it is. Right. Uh, but then when he gets to David, you know he he goes through you know. Um, Saul and Saul's failures pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let me just read, he quotes 2 Samuel 7, 9 through 10, part of uh, the Davidic covenant, the covenant God makes with David. 
uh, where it says, And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. I hear so a lot of bees in there. Yeah, that's right. You Like literally, <laughs> mm-hmm. you do hear it more. Yep. Uh, yeah, so he's giving the same promises that were given to Abraham. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like you're saying, he goes on to add that now these this covenant is taking the shape of being d- directed toward specifically David's family. Right. right. This is going to happen through David's family, through his offspring. That's how these things are going to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, so 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Mm. So you see that God is now, it's, you know, it's interesting. We've been talking about that the way that, in a sense, the covenant uh, broadens as you go, and that's true, yep. right? And the one yep. sense it broadens, right? So it escalates. God's presence expands. His people expand. His his. We talked uh, last week about it's supposed to be a blessing to the nations, and this like exact, foreshadowing. Exactly, like, it yep. just keeps growing. Right. And at the same time, that growth is happening by actually becoming much more specific. Right. Like he, he continues. Okay. It's, it's Abraham, okay, now it's Isaac and Jacob. And, like, it just keeps down this road of almost, you wouldn't say narrowing, because mm-hmm. it's been this way from the beginning. It's this man and his offspring. Yep. Um, but that man and offspring continues to kind of, you know, um, focus in almost. Like, right. focus in on on where, or maybe, it, like you could say, distills. Like, it continues to distill until you get to the point where you're actually at, where you need to be. Oh, it's actually David's offspring. Right. Who is the offspring of Abraham? Who is the offspring of Jacob? Right. But more specifically, he is the son of David. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which is great. I mean, and we can trace that, of course, all the way back to who is the, the seed of the woman going to be back in Genesis 3. Like, And, of course, yeah, like you're saying now, we get to learn that it's going to come from the line of David, which by the end of the chapter we're going to find out is, like, the entire hope of the Israelite people through the hardest of times. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. I want to make note, this is just a little bit offhand, uh, but at the bottom of page 84, mm-hmm. he mentions that, uh, he says, here God continues to undo the damage of the fall by appointing David and his descendants as covenant kings. Uh, and and he'll you know, move forward with that, but this is where you're talking about, he adds the idea of a king uh, to these different promises. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this idea that you know, in doing this, God is actually working to undo the damage that's been caused by the fall um, he's he's doing that now sometimes we maybe think you know God didn't do that until the new covenant and obviously in its fullest sense that's true in Christ um, that the fulfillment of this covenant of grace that's been at work already um, is is Christ and so that's the ultimate undoing or or, or uh, you know uh, salvation from the effects of the fall but you just see too that God is like from the beginning, God is at work slowly undoing the damage or even like kind of hedging in some of the damage that is done from the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, 
yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have much more to say. I just think that that uh, to think in those ways, think about uh, the way God does that. And it's like God did not just do that overnight. Um, he didn't. He, he always had the same plan, right, from the beginning, mm. uh, that he would cover his people with the blood of a lamb. Like, it, like it's always been there right? Um, from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned. Right, uh, chapter 321, when he covers them, and the fig leaves don't work, but now he's going to cover them with the skin of the Exactly, animal. there's yep. a sacrifice. Uh, there, you know, the offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and God. then it's, you know... The offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. The offspring of Abraham is going to, going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. The offspring of, you know, it just keeps going. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the fact that God works so slowly, mm. in from our perspective, right, through through history, yeah. it doesn't mean that he hasn't already worked in such a way that, you know, if right. you, you think of that, the work of the cross, this is the whole idea of the covenant of grace, right? I mean, it's, it, is, uh, it is something that God has accomplished that has covered all of his people from all time, right? All of his covenant people. Right. Uh, not just after right. Christ came. Right. right. So so history works backwards yep. too. It doesn't um, you know, God is outside of time. Right. So so the way that he works is different. Uh, but from our perspective, God works slowly. Mm. Uh, it, it's not that he's actually slow. Peter talks about this, but um, but he does work slowly, um, carefully and I'm just intrigued by that, that, you know, God is the kind of God that doesn't just, he doesn't just undo everything instantly. Mm-hmm. But he does, from the start, begin to curb some of these issues that have been brought by the fall, right? He, he begins to limit the life of man. He begins to, to uh, you know, hedge man in with his law. He's, he's doing things to preserve mankind, to preserve his people more specifically um, for the coming of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, but the way that he works is not by just undoing everything instantly either. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to do with that. I just think it's interesting. What do you make of, so I've heard a lot of people say, well, the, the main reason that God appears to be so slow to fulfill in the new covenant era, so post-Christ, or post-Christ's ascension here, um, is that God is patient. And so the, the main reason is because he's, he's wanting to see all these different people groups saved, and um, he's merciful. And, and, of course, yeah, we can trace those themes throughout the Bible. Um, so firstly, would, would you, are you okay saying, I think that's the primary motivation or is that too simplistic or reductionistic? And then two, does that relate to the Old Testament here? Can you, can you read that patient? Can, is patience the motivation here pre the Christ's dissension? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Peter says this, right? I mean, he mm-hmm. does say that the, the Lord is not um, slow as we count slowness, but he is waiting that uh, everybody would have an opportunity to repent. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember. I'm, I'm not quoting it exactly right. Is that? Well, it's probably in the message somewhere. Right. Is that First Peter, or is that Second Peter? I'm so sorry. I do not know. It's probably Second Peter. That's but First Peter, I was just thinking a second ago when you were talking about Christ not being his atonement, not being confined to a certain time. I mean, I think it is First Peter that says Christ suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, which is oh man, love. And then it talks about baptism and oh, good stuff. But anyways, yes, which we uh, totally agree on everything about baptism. Yeah. So uh, he says um, in Second Peter three, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
and then the heavens will pass away at the roar, and the heavenly bodies will burn. Um, mm-hmm. So there's that sense that God, like one of the reasons that God waits for certain things, or He doesn't, you know, um, work quickly from our perspective, is that He's patient, long suffering, and He wants people to repent. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't want to, any to perish. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, and Peter's talking specifically to the church, right? Speaking of 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 the elect. Uh, but that is a general principle, I think, that's true, true of God. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see that, you know, um, that in the Old Testament, a similar thing was at work. Um, this is in Romans 3. Paul says that, um, if I pull it up so again, I don't just quote it. <laughs> Message yeah, translation. You know, right. Yeah. Uh, willy-nilly. Um, he says, Romans three twenty one. but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God are justified by his grace um, uh, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Uh It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier. Um, So... There you see a similar thing going on, right? That God didn't judge sin um, quickly, suddenly. Obviously, there are temporal judgments at work, but he did not judge um, all sins instantly, right away. Um, He, in his forbearance, overlooked these things uh, because they were going to be punished in Christ, right? That, uh, That that these sins, this is specifically speaking of his people, right? Those who are justified. Um, he he wasn't unjust by waiting. Right. Um, he was being just because ultimately he was going to uh, punish those things in Christ. Um, his wrath would be poured out on those sins still just in Christ. Mm-hmm. So there's something going on there, right? There's something similar going on uh, that, that God is patient. I do think it's generally true. God is far more patient than, you know, we Praise can't God. imagine, right? He's Praise so God. slow to anger. Um you know, as much as everybody will say, you know, it's the end, everything's going to fall right, like God's judgment is here. Um, that can be true, on the one hand, while still being true that God is unbelievably merciful. And even if Nineveh can repent, right. you know, uh, then at the preaching of Jonah, that was not even a full... Right, I we mean, talked preaching. about this last week, he wasn't even, he wasn't preaching yeah, for repentance. Exactly. He was like, hey, heads up, you're going to die, you're all I'm going to watch it. Right, <laughs> right you're all going to die. Oh, we should repent. And God had mercy on them, right? That's because that's what he's like. Uh, and that's, you know, so nobody is at the point. Nobody is so far beyond repentance that they can't know his mercy. Praise God. They may still be destroyed, right? I mean, like physically on mm-hmm. on this earth, right? There, there are people that have done such evil things. They should be mm-hmm. uh, destroyed. But that doesn't mean that they can't repent, that they can't actually be, be forgiven. Uh, and that's just a testimony to the mercy of God. So in that way, I mean, you see that, right? Like, that is central to the character of God. This is, so, in a lot of of, uh, New Calvinism, Young Restless Reform stuff, since we're on the Restless Podcast right now, um, in a lot of this world, one of the things that that guys love to talk a lot about was the wrath of God and the judgment of God. Mm. Uh, Because it wasn't talked about anywhere else, right? It was, and and so particularly young men finding this doctrine, uh, we're like, okay, well, I'm going to talk about this every opportunity that I have. Cage stage yeah. on wrath. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
It's true, and and it's not wrong to talk about the judgment and wrath of God. You should. There are times that it's appropriate and right. But what does the scripture emphasize? What does God emphasize mm. about himself? Yeah. Right? When God declares his name to Moses, mm-hmm. the Lord, the Lord, merciful, slow to anger, slow abounding, to anger yeah. Yeah, praise abounding God. in, in steadfast, uh, love, steadfast yeah. covenant love, right? In Hesed. Um, he, yeah. like That's what God is like most fundamentally. Mm. And so, yeah, which is what led, you know, different uh, systematic theologians in the past to say that wrath is not... Uh, maybe a proper category of God's character in the same way that, say, love is or, or something mm. like that. Would uh, you just put that as a, a, a subtext of his category, his characterization of being just? Yeah, his justice, right? Yeah. It is. It's an outworking of his justice towards sin. Right. Um, but, for instance, you know, before sin was in the world, um, there was just God. What, right. what, what was he, you know, in, in the eternal state? Now, obviously, yeah. this gets into some muddy waters. People fight about this. There are probably some people that hear this and they're like, "That sounds crazy. <laughs> um, you're psychotic." But, uh, but and we're not I, denying that we're psychotic, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, but I do think that it's probably proper to not, you know, that wrath is actually a something that comes out of the love of God and the justice of God. Praise God. Um, and so it's not necessarily right. in the same category, right? Uh, of, and the holiness of God, right? Like these yeah. things that are, you know, um, in our theology proper are truly central characteristics of who God is, as opposed to a, kind of an outworking of those things um, in per, in the context of right. sinful humanity. Right. Yeah, which is really important. I mean, even like as, as I'm walking through, um, yeah, part of my part of my role here in lacrosse is getting to work with students a lot, and so helping them understand these parts of God is important. And so I think it it really helps, and every Christian ought to know what like the idea of how can God be holy if he's apathetic towards, and I'll usually use some egregious injustice that people can like, okay, if, if your mom got mowed down by a drunk driver and died, and then two months later, standing in front of the judge, the, the drunk driver was let off the hook completely because the judge is a loving judge, every person in the room would know, no, that judge actually isn't loving at all. Because if, if they were loving, if they were just, they wouldn't be indifferent or complacent towards evil, but they would actually... Yeah respond to 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 evil to wickedness right well what's what's crazy is that we are in a time when actually people think oh well to be loving that is what is necessary which is preposterous yeah Yeah. you you go be the son of the murdered mother in that scenario and you'll know full well right that's actually not the case yeah no it's it's crazy but yeah no so anyways i can see how yeah we root that back we root god's wrath under the umbrella of his justice which comes under the umbrella of overall just his holiness is his being a holy god so yeah yeah, man. He talks about um, in this covenant this kind of something that we've actually seen before already, the idea of these conditions that are laid upon mm-hmm. this covenant. Right. That if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have on the one hand a promise that seems complete and absolute without condition. Right. Your offspring will be the king. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's a like an absolute con- unconditional promise. Yep. And yet on the same token there mm-hmm. are there are conditions placed right. um, for him. And so um, you know he says uh, you know but is it this is on page 86 mm-hmm. if you're following along at home. He says but is the covenant really conditional? In verse 11, God swears a sure oath from which he will not turn back that at least one of David's children will rule. 
that sounds pretty certain to me, he says. Okay, along the way, the odd sun king might go astray, but there's simply no doubt that one day a faithful king will rule forever. And, yeah. and I think that's important to remember, that these conditions are not conditions in the sense that all of a sudden God's promise is 100% dependent upon the action yeah. of these kings. Yep. Uh, no, he's. I mean, he's determined what is going to happen. However, there's still a conditional element. We're going to see that with the way that the kings end up failing time mm-hmm. and time and time again. And so he starts by talking about Solomon. Right. Yeah, Solomon is another one of those that uh, I recently heard a pastor who I really respect walk through, uh, whatever it was, Second Kings. And he's like, yeah, a lot of people perceive Solomon as this super wise guy who just at the end of his life makes some really poor decisions. But actually, it seems like as we read through the text, you can see a lot of these um, foreshadowings of, oh, actually, Solomon is Solomon's not great. Solomon's not going to, and I shouldn't say he's not great, but right. um, he's he's not the promised heir of David. He's not the, the son of David who's going to redeem hmm. Israel. Yeah. And that becomes quickly apparent. I mean, yeah, what is that, page 88 where it talks about the fading light where... He starts to to indulge in all the the three G's, the guns, girls, and gold, uh, <laughs> yes. and then of course those girls lead him into straight out idolatry and pursuing other gods, and uh, yeah, nah, no bueno, no bueno. Even though obviously before that, um, much is made about Solomon's wisdom and how, um, just like his father David, both incredibly prosperous for the the nation of Israel. It would have been great to be an Israelite during that time. Other countries like beheld the Israelite, beheld Solomon, the queen of, of Sheba arrives, and she's just marveling at his wealth. And um, yeah, just really, really incredible stuff. I mean, and also obviously the building of the temple is really important in this era as yep. well. Um, but yeah, it does all seem to unravel pretty dang quickly shortly thereafter. Yep. Yeah, it does. It's But you see this, I mean, this is true with David too, right? I mean, you see the same thing with David. Mm-hmm. Uh, David is, is both David, the man after God's own heart, right? God... God will continue to remember the sons of David by looking back and saying, "I'm like I'm yes, not going to be totally wiped to out because yes. of David, my son." Yep. Uh, but if you look at David's life, how David messed lived, up stuff, uh, yeah. a lot of messed up stuff. This is where I think that sometimes we, like our um, evangelical moralism, gets in the way of actually seeing mm. the text of Scripture as we're supposed to, mm. because we look back on these Old Testament figures um, and we judge them and how they lived thinking oh they really aren't good guys right like they're not oh they're not righteous Um, but God calls them righteous Um, God says David is is a man after my own heart Um, we wouldn't say that if Mm. we saw how David lived we would say he's not a man after God's own heart right Um, and this is true I mean this is so many Old Testament characters it's true with Right, almost, almost all the judges. Think about how many judges are are in Hebrews eleven. This hall of faith. Like, look at these great men. Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute. What do you mean, great men? Like, right. I thought the whole point was that they're not great. men. Right. It's actually hundred percent. No, they well, are. Like, they they actually are. Think about um, where Peter says talks about righteous Lot. Mm. Like, Lot we was wouldn't a righteous regard man. Lot as righteous when no. we read through that Dude, text. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, and almost always when somebody preaches that text where it says that you know righteous Lot in Peter. The point of the sermon, almost always, just watch this, almost always the point of the sermon is, oh, Lot wasn't actually righteous. Hmm. That's usually like the big, he wasn't actually righteous. No, but that's not what it says. <laughs> it's not what it says. Uh, 
what Peter meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> what I think what, why we do this is because, number one, we have a way higher view of our own righteousness than we mm. should. Yep. So we think that we're way better off. Now, we have the blessing of being at a more mature point in the history right. of God's people. We have the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. We like we have a lot of blessings, sure, um, and, and things that that you know um, maybe uh, it could be said that you know the people of God over time have grown and matured in a way um, that it's maybe a little bit easier to look at some of those things and say, oh, this was really uh-huh. no, this was really messed up. Uh, however, I think even more so though, probably our it is that self righteousness where our standards are different than God's standards. Because God's standard when working with mankind is not, well, you have to be fully righteous in and of yourself before I will be at work within you, before I Praise do God. any if work. Praise God, that was the case, you. yeah, nobody, yeah. We're yep. done. Yeah, yep. we're, it's over. But we do think that. Like, we, maybe not consciously, we right. maybe wouldn't articulate it that way. Right. But we show that when we look back, we read back, and we're like, well, look, the point of the story of Noah or the story of Abraham or the story of any of these people is they're just as bad as me or they're like sure. a really bad guy. Yep. I, don't I feel better about myself mm-hmm. now? Um, no, actually, no. <laughs> they're, like, they're, they are doing these things. This is why the Old Testament trips people up whenever you, know, you have uh, particularly women in the Old Testament throughout lying on behalf of the people of God to save them. Mm-hmm. And God blesses them for it. And, you know, our kind of evangelical sentiments are like, that's not good. Right. And it's not, like, the, the, the point of those stories is not to say, hey, it's good to be deceptive all the time. Right. Um, but uh, there is a point where it, it's clear, oh, actually, like, when you're living in a sinful world, uh, you there's no just being clean and free from the sins of the world. You're not going to be like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have this idea that you can be like that. A lot of the kind of Wesleyan holiness movement as it's kind of infiltrated all, you know, realms of, uh, of the church. It's really, you know, really probably pietism that has done mm-hmm. a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, but you just think about the nature of, of the kind of religion that is typical in America that, uh, you know, brought about things like prohibition mm. or, or these sorts of things, right? And you still hear it in a lot of, in a lot of the theological traditions that carry on from that era where, you know, it's like, well, like you have to, you know, um, keep this morally pure life. So you, which means you don't do these outward acts um, of, of sinful things. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not advocating those things, mm-hmm. uh, but what you have in scripture is all these guys did those things. Like mm-hmm. all these guys, all, all of God's favorite people mm-hmm. were incredibly sinful. Right. All of his favorite people. Um, and so this like concern that, oh, am I going to, like, am I going to slip up and drink a little bit or, you know, like any of those things where it's like, I'm, I am morally clean. I don't want to taint myself. Um, the reality is in scripture, no, it, it works the other way around. If you are beloved of God, Mm-hmm. Um, then you're like that moral stain, which is true. It doesn't, that doesn't actually, um, you know, it's it's not you being infected by the world. You're actually the the uh, effective one, the, the infective one. I don't yeah, know. yeah, I was going to say like pollutant in the world, but no, yeah. that doesn't sound great either. Right, <laughs> but kind of, like you are, yes. you know. Well, and that's going to tie in directly with what we're going to see about Manasseh later on in this very chapter, and also the inverse of him, the Christ. But, but yeah, no, that's... Uh, that's really good for sure. Um, 
Man, okay, so shortly after the, the fading light part here, um, Rhodes writes that we yeah. need to be careful. Right. Yeah, dude, I... Yeah, that was great. Um, Super helpful. Maybe if I could read this, I would love yep. to hear your thoughts on just... Uh, maybe I'll just read that paragraph really briefly. It says, we need to be careful here. Uh, this is after reading 1 Kings 11, 11 to 13. It's not that God brings the fullness of the covenant curses to bear on Solomon. In fact, both the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants have a sliding scale of punishments. Compare Israel's covenant role as a light to the Gentiles, less to a simple on and off switch, and instead more so to one of those dimmer switches. At base, yes, the light is on or off, you have faith or you don't, but obedience uh, after that can grow or it can dim. Uh, when the Israelites' be, uh, light begins to fade, God in his love would send a warning sign, a small foretaste of the fuller curses, warning bells to wake his people up before the light is completely extinguished. Yeah, it's so good. And that's, you know, I mean, we already talked about Nineveh, but the fact that God does that with Nineveh, of course he's going to do it with his people, right? Mm. Of course he's going to be uh, do that with Israel, who he says, I give people in exchange for, right? Like right. He's, he, he cares more about Israel than Nineveh, for right. instance. Um, not that he doesn't care about the Nineveh, because he does, right? right. He, that's what he tells right. Jonah. Um, I know we're not talking about, you know, Jonah, but uh, but he keeps coming up. Yeah. Uh, he keeps being in my mind. But, yeah, that I think is so helpful, uh, again, because we often think that everything boils down to like this kind of moral perfectionism oh man i didn't keep this okay dead like that's mm-hmm. that's it right well, that's not true that's not how god works um, no. no even as his people continued to sin against him he was long suffering he forbeared and he continued to offer opportunities mm-hmm. for faith hope love um and so there's no room for despair, even there, right? right. Like there's um, to grieve over sin, and that and his people did, right? I mean, his prophets do grieve right. over their sin, right? Um, and yet there is that hope that they're able to maintain, which is what they're able to take with them into exile. Mm. When when the people are ultimately exiled because of that sin, they're able to take that with. Daniel's able to, you know, look and hope to where this is all going to end up, right? Yeah. Yep, totally. And then even, I think we, we've spoken on this uh, on the book club here previously about the idea of, like, God's discipline as a blessing and, like, an outworking of his love. But I think that's pretty clearly what we're seeing here with Israel. There's not, this is not, God is like, okay, you have to atone for your sin. This is this is what your sin costs. Like, no, nope. turns out the coming Christ, the, the one who comes from David's line is going to make that payment in full. So this, this is merciful discipline this is when uh, a parent slaps a child's wrist before he touches the hot stove because otherwise it's going to burn him um yeah i think that's that's important to remember for god's relationship to the israelites here and the continuation of his has said his covenantal love towards them not being revoked it's not um god is a vending machine what you put in is what you're going to get out um but instead his his unflinching faithful love to them and his resolve that he is going to sanctify them eventually through entirely through Christ. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good, man. And yeah, you already mentioned Manasseh. Um, Dude, so, let's know, talk about after Manasseh. Solomon. Um, you know, the kingdom is split. Mm-hmm. And you know, one thing that uh, is, you know, often uh, often used as a often used as a uh, you know a way to uh, kind of trip guys up in the ordination process in the PCA at least in the Wisconsin Presbytery 
um, <laughs> is to you know ask a guy, hey, you know, name name a good king in the southern kingdom, and and all name a good king in the northern kingdom in the kingdom of Israel. Sure. Um, after the split. Yep. And usually it's like, uh, oh, I, I can't think of a like good a northern good king, king in the northern kingdom. Yep. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> like yep. that's because there is none. <laughs> like there's none. Um, but in Judah there is right. Praise in God. Judah, there's a few shining. I mean, yeah, Josiah, Manasseh's grandson being a really, really great right. one who leads a brief revival. I did, right before that, so uh, Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, so he's regarded, I mean, he's like as bad as the Ahabs, the Ahaz, yeah. maybe worse. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. Rhodes points out, he says that Manasseh brings covenant curses down on his people in two ways. And this was this was interesting. Firstly, he does so as their federal head, right, as their representative. Um because he sins, they're going to bear the the punishment of that. But then, on the flip side, uh, Rhodes also reminds us that Manasseh equally, he made Judas sin uh, with his idols. And so here the problem isn't Manasseh's lack of righteousness, it's his corrupting effect on his people. And so there's yeah. this twofold um, federal headship, but then also infections, uh, infectious pollutant that he is into the people. Well. I thought that was, so as we're reading about that, and of course that brings back resemblances to Adam in Genesis 3 and everything that happened there, but also the flip side of Jesus' work on our behalf in both of these settings as well as, firstly, justifying us as our federal head, as being the representative, and then secondly, this idea of sanctification that um, as as we continue to, to pursue God by his word and through prayer, his spirit is going to cause us to become... Mm-hmm the opposite of corrupt we're going to become more and more like christ right it works the other way oh my gosh you see this throughout the gospels um all of these things that in the old testament would make you unclean right if you touched the dead you become unclean like the um uncleanness works that way right um if you you know if you have um some if you have something that makes you unclean leprosy um you you know um whatever it might be, when you read through the Levitical law, like if you touch the thing, you become unclean. So uncleanness works its way out, like in anybody that touches it, anybody that touches them, anybody right. that, you know. Yep. And then Christ comes, and it works the other way, right? Praise holiness God. works its way outward. Um, mm. Holiness is the thing that's infectious all mm-hmm. of a sudden. Uh, and so um, when somebody touches him who is unclean, it's not that he becomes unclean, it's that they become clean, right? Praise they God. are healed they're raised from the dead, whatever it may be. Yep. They're cleansed of leprosy. Uh, they're they're healed from a flowing of blood. Like all these things that would make you unclean. All of a sudden, it starts working its way the mm. other direction. And uh, that's, I, again, this is just a, a motif that so cool. runs throughout the Old Testament where everything's kind of flowing, you know, in a sense. I don't know. Um, you could say everything's kind of... Uh, of uh, uncleanness is kind of infecting the people. Now it's going the other way out mm. because of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, the flood, you know, the waters rising, um, this motif that you see throughout the prophets of kind of using the flood, like the flood is is it's coming up over the people and they're not going to be swept away, they're not going to be destroyed. Isaiah 43, like the water's not going to come over your head. But it is like, I mean, the flood of the world 
the sea, um, which Matt and I have just been talking, and some of the restless folks know on the Patreon anyway. Uh, we just talked through the idea of fishers of men and the motif of fishing in the New Testament and how that's a shift from the motif of particularly shepherds in the Old Testament. There's very few places in the Old Testament that you talk about fishing, um, fish, the sea. Um, and so there's this idea that like the Gentile world is the sea. It's this place that's kind of stormy, dark, dangerous. Like you, you don't go out into the sea. You don't venture into it. The sea is always a, a kind of uh, place of destruction mm-hmm. for the people of God. And um, in the exile, a lot of times this is seen as like a kind of like the waters. The waters are covering the people. It's a kind of flood, right? Like they're mm-hmm. being judged. But here too, in the new covenant. What, what's going on? Well, actually, now water flows the other way, mm-hmm. right? So this living water that that starts in you by faith, fountains up to eternal life. Mm-hmm. Um, this water that uh, we're told in Ezekiel as he looks to the new covenant, that there's going to be this water that runs out of the temple. What is the temple? It's going to be Christ, mm-hmm. right? That water is going to flow out of the temple, and it's going to fill everything else, right? Like it's going to cover uh, everything else, right? Water flows from the side of Christ, and and we, being people who are baptized, right, we're, we are, uh, we are in a sense, the water now, right? So, like, the water before, the flood before was a destructive force against the people of God, a judgment. But actually now in the New Covenant, just like it comes to, just like with holiness and, and, and uh, being clean versus unclean, now all of a sudden it's working its way the other way, right? Mm-hmm. Now, actually, we're the flood, right? We're the flood going out into the world. Uh, and so it can be said that the earth is going to be covered with, the knowledge of the glory of God as water covers the sea, right? There's this kind of like uh, flood heading the other direction now, Mm -hmm. flowing out of the temple, flowing out of the side of Christ. And so Mm. anyway, you just, you have all of these motifs being brought up, all these motifs that are, uh, that are kind of shining forth through this of your right, like this covenant headship where everything's now, it's working the other direction. Mm. Yeah, that's really, really great. Well, I appreciate he kind of wraps up his his uh, chapter here by asking the question. Okay, by by the end of this, so the, the the kingdom has been split. We've got the ten tribes who went to the north. Israel, terrible, really bad. Uh, eventually, becoming the Samaritans here because of the Assyrians invading them and intermarrying, etc. Well. God's paradise appears to have been fractured. Uh, his presence is no longer with the people. I mean, the temple is destroyed. So, uh, and and the kingship, of course, also lies in tatters. He says the king has been has been carried off into exile in Babylon, dethroned, imprisoned. So, what sort of progress have we made from Genesis three in the first yeah. place? I mean, this is the same thing happening all over. The three Ps are devastated, and of course, praise God. He points to one particular thing which has changed. He says. God has made these covenant promises, yes, and that's what the people are going to have to hold on to. That's going to be the the sure foundation that they have when everything else appears to be sifting away. Yeah, yeah, and that's still true, right? I mean, that's still that is still the case when things seem like how could God be fulfilling His promises? How mm-hmm. could He be at work? Same thing. You look to the covenant promises of God. You remember, okay, He's. I mean, He is still promised. He is made absolutely certain, and maybe He is working in a way that, from our point of view, appears to be slow, quote-unquote. Right. Um, Still, really, I mean, it's still, um, he is still showing his steadfast love, his covenant love, uh, which he talks about at the end of the chapter here. As, as, like, he's still making that clear. He's still, he has made that clear, and what we're supposed to do is trust that. Mm. Um, And in this case, the people trusting that in exile um, were, like, they... We're able to come back, 
they came back to the land. Mm-hmm. Not all of them. It wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, you know, perfect. Things were not fulfilled. Uh, but then they were able to hold on to. Okay, God is still going to do this work. He's still going to send this Davidic king, this Messiah. Yeah. There's still the anointed one to come. Uh, they they knew these things because of the promise of God, and that mm-hmm. was sure. Praise God, man. Praise God. Well, this is the last covenant before we get to see the institution of this new covenant. Um, the covenant, yeah, of Jesus himself. So that'll be cool to discuss next week. Looks like it's a little bit longer than our previous chapters. And actually, the following one, the following chapter titled The Covenant of Redemption, that one might be the longest chapter of the book as I'm just looking at the pages here. So should be should be some really good stuff, man. 